You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And this morning we're reading from chapter 16, the first five verses. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, you'll find this on page 924 of the Pew Bible. Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Hear the word of God. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." Well, the last time we were together, we considered the major dispute that led to a separation. You may remember that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement over the young man named John Mark. And this was the man who deserted the mission at Pamphylia. He quit. Barnabas, being the encourager that he was, wanted to give him another chance and take him along. But Paul was adamant in his refusal to allow the deserter to accompany them any further. So the two men selected two other men, and they went their separate ways. Paul and Silas headed north and visited churches throughout Asia Minor. And on this journey, they dropped in on church plants in reverse order. They traveled east to west this time, arriving in Derby, then Lystra, then Iconium. And it was while in Lystra that Paul and Silas met a young disciple named Timothy. This wasn't surprising, I don't think, because Paul and Barnabas had made converts on their first missionary journey. Presumably, he was among them, or at least his mother. He was the son of a mixed marriage, We're told that his mother was Jewish, his father was a Gentile, and Luke's description suggests that his father was not a Christian, an unbeliever. And from the imperfect verb that he uses, we assume that the man was already dead. But his Jewish mother had been converted, and she was a Christian. In fact, both his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois were believers. And Paul commends them, especially for the sincerity of their faith. These women, thank God, had tremendous impacts upon Timothy's life. 
We're told that from childhood he had been acquainted with the sacred writings. So his mother and his grandmother had instilled within him a knowledge of and a love for the scriptures. And you know something? I don't think there is any greater task than training children in the inspired oracles of the living God. Why? Not only because they deserve our highest esteem. After all, that's the word of God. But as Paul expressly says, these are the things that make one wise to salvation. Not in and of themselves, of course, as Reformed people, we understand it's the Spirit who applies the Scriptures to the heart. But when he does that, a new creature comes into being. New life. And so Timothy obviously had been transformed by the working of the Holy Spirit with the Scriptures in his own heart. But he had not been given the mark of the covenant. He had not been circumcised. He'd been trained in the covenant, but he had not been identified with the covenant. They had exposed him to biblical teaching and godly character had been formed in him. He was highly esteemed by all the brethren in the local towns. And by the way, I think that therein lies the most important test of a person's character. What impression is left on those with whom we live and work and worship. That's the test. These are the people who see us up close, day after day, and the nature of our lives. Upon close inspection, day after day, they're able to observe the fruit, or lack thereof. And that's where the credibility of a profession is proved, or disproved. As a matter of fact, the qualifications for an officer have this part to play. It says he must be well thought of by even outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Now, it doesn't say here that the unbelieving world has to approve of everything we do or say, but even they can understand a person's character. It's important to every Christian on at least two different levels. I think, first of all, it's important to the process of making our calling and election sure. The manifest approbation, the universal approval of God's people is critically important. What do your fellow worshipers think about you? We easily deceive ourselves about ourselves. We either think too high of ourselves or too low of ourselves. And sin reduces us to fools. I can either have an overinflated ego or I can have a deflated self-esteem. And that's why the New Testament clearly says on most things, including this one, that every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. What do your fellow worshipers think about you? I think oftentimes it's far easier to fool ourselves than it is to fool other people. I think the honest evaluation of our fellow believers can be very helpful. That's the first thing. But secondly, a good reputation like Timothy's is essential for leadership, for evangelism. A person with a bad reputation is likely to bring reproach upon the gospel and the church. So Timothy obviously had a good reputation as a godly young man, and he was highly esteemed. 
But the fly in the ointment was the fact that he was uncircumcised, presumably because of his Gentile father. And Paul wanted to recruit him not just as a companion, but a fellow worker. But his uncircumcision, the fact that he didn't have the covenant mark, would be problematic for the work of missions. It's a problem. According to Jewish law, Timothy was a Jew because he was the son of a Jewish mother. But because his father was a Gentile, he hadn't been circumcised on the eighth day. So Timothy, as we read, was considered cut off from Israel. All the local Jews knew it. We read earlier, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So Timothy, in the eyes of the local Jews, was an apostate Jew. He'd been cut off from the covenant. And if Paul decided to take him along and wish to gain a hearing in the synagogues, it'd be a problem. The news would spread. Paul was somehow condoning apostasy and his mission work would be destroyed. So Paul wanted to Timothy to accompany him. So he took him and circumcised him. And some have accused Paul of being inconsistent for doing this. After all, didn't he just get done arguing that circumcision was no longer required? Unnecessary, obsolete. Was this not recently confirmed by the Jerusalem Council? So why would Paul circumcise Timothy because of Jewish sensitivity? Do you see the problem that some have with that? Wasn't he the champion of Christian liberty, Christian freedom and liberty of conscience? What's going on here? Well... In response to questions like this, I would say, yes, he was opposed to circumcising a Gentile like Titus, which he did adamantly. There was no reason to require it because salvation is free to believers. Circumcision was a matter of indifference to Paul, totally irrelevant. Made no difference if you're circumcised or uncircumcised in his eyes. A person's relationship to God was not affected one way or the other. But while it had no significance toward God, it may have great significance to men. Whether we like it or not, circumcision at that time was a very hot issue. And in order to speak in the synagogues and among the Jews, you had to be circumcised. If while uncircumcised, Timothy accompanied Paul, his ministry would be hindered. Nobody's going to listen to him. And the apostle knew that he needed to gain a hearing if he was going to save some. And he could gain that hearing if they performed this minor surgical operation. It would remove a major obstacle for ministry and Timothy could be useful. As John Stott put it, what was unnecessary for acceptance with God was advisable for acceptance with men. 
And I hope we're able to see that this was not a matter of principle. This was a matter of practice. It was a practical matter. It had no religious significance whatsoever. Paul and Timothy understood that this rite was useful simply to gain a hearing. That's it. The medical procedure would make Timothy more useful. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, Though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So it all boils down to this, that circumcising Timothy was evangelistic strategy. It simply removed the stigma associated with Timothy's mixed parentage. And in so doing, I believe it opened doors for him to minister among Jewish people. So Paul was against requiring circumcision as a condition for salvation, but he was all in favor of circumcising in order to gain a hearing. Let me illustrate. I think when I was in seminary, I knew a man who was called to labor in a Muslim country. And when I knew him, this white American male was clean shaven, very handsome face. But in order to gain a hearing among Muslims, he grew a beard. He recognized that in that culture, bearded men were respected. Clean shaven men, not respected. So to gain a hearing for the gospel among the Muslim people, he had to grow a beard. And for the sake of ministry, he covered himself with facial fur. That's what he had to do. In the same way, Paul circumcised Timothy to gain a hearing, to alleviate Jewish suspicion, he was willing to accommodate himself to them. And he was confident that his young son in the faith would be an asset to the team. And as it turned out, he became Paul's closest ministerial colleague. There was this intimate bond between them. He calls him in 1 Corinthians 4, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So having been circumcised, Timothy joins the team. They pass through the cities, delivering the decision, and they make a healthy impact upon the church plants. So what do we draw from this? At least three lessons. First, I think this teaches us something about the significance of exercising godly discernment. Godly discernment. You know, there are some things in Scripture that are plain and easy to understand. The wages of sin is death. All people have sinned. Plain. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Plain, easily understood. But there are other things in the oracles of God that are difficult to understand. The three persons in the Trinity. The Son's incarnation. Predestination. The mystical union of believers with Christ. These are difficult things. And the changing role of circumcision among the people of God was a difficult thing. You see, God ordained circumcision to be the sign of the old covenant. So for thousands of years, think of that, thousands of years, it was the mark that identified the people of God. 
And all of a sudden, under the new covenant, circumcision is obsolete. And to be so circumcised is to be cut off from Christ. That's a hard thing to get. Yet under certain circumstances, circumcision can be helpful. So depending on the circumstances, circumcision can be good or it can be bad. And it calls for discernment. It's such an important skill for Christians to acquire. And the big question is, what is needed for you and I to exercise discernment? First, let me say that discernment is a spiritual skill obtained only with personal effort. You can't be discerning overnight. It comes with practice, with experience. Your mind and your spiritual faculties have to be trained to discern wisely. In Hebrews 5, the writer says this, Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He's writing this because the Hebrews were unfamiliar with God's word and they lacked discernment. At some point, those people had stopped hungering for truth and learning the word. They should have been teachers, but they still craved spiritual milk. You know what that is. Milk is easily digestible. It doesn't require much strength or maturity. The Hebrews ignored the deep mysteries of the gospel, and they wanted to feed only on the plainest of truths. Just give me the plain things. Solid food is substantial, wholesome, and appropriate for adults. For example, the high priesthood of Christ who died on the cross and intercedes for us continually. That's something that we can sink our teeth into. So first of all, a spiritual skill that's obtained only with personal effort. And second of all, the mind and spiritual faculties are trained by constant practice, by prayer, hearing the word, studying the scriptures, meditating upon truths, Nothing can replace the practice and the pursuit of godliness in gaining discernment. You know, God's truth is never so grasped and appreciated as when we do it. Isn't this what the psalmist tells us in Psalm 111? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. Growth in Christ and discernment is not an intellectual but a spiritual challenge. So the need is not to be more intelligent. The need is to be more obedient. That's discerning. The academic landscape, I'm sure you know this, is littered with all kinds of foolish scholars. If we strive to grow into maturity by training our spiritual faculties and constantly practice the powers of discernment, we will distinguish good and evil. This is right. That's wrong. How many times have you asked yourself, what does God want me to do? That takes discernment. So make it your aim to grow skillful in the word, not just doctrine, but practice. Grab hold of God's promises because there's plenty of them and apply the truth to your situation. Let me give you an example. 
He tells us he withholds no good thing from those who walk uprightly, Psalm 84. That means that whatever you have is a good thing. I don't care what it is. You might think it's painful. It's a good thing. He withholds no good thing from you because you're a believer. If you don't have it, it can't be a good thing. That's a promise. And you apply it to your life and you resist the temptation to distrust him. And in that way, you learn and I learn to practice to discern good and evil. Is my affliction bad? Well, the promise is he withholds no good thing from a believer. So I discern that my affliction is good. We can't mistake error for truth. We cannot mistake evil for good. There are many who are wise in principles, but they err in the details. They know the rules of the word, but they mess up in the application of them. And I have to admit that the Christian life is not easy. This is not easy stuff. It's fraught with many tribulations, and we're called to exercise discernment to the glory of Christ. So ask God for his blessing as you strive to grow in spiritual discernment. That's the first lesson. But then there's lesson number two. It teaches us something about the importance of adaptability in evangelism. As we just looked at, Paul was willing to circumcise Timothy because of his passion for the gospel. His whole life was devoted to the good news of Christ and the advance of God's kingdom. And from his perspective, Paul's perspective, this was the fight to wage and the race to run. Nothing else compared to it. It was of the utmost significance. And every decision that the apostle made was with the gospel and the church in mind. Who he talked to. What he said. How he said it. Where he went. How he lived. Everything about his life was governed by a concern for the gospel. Because you see, Paul knew what awaited every person on the other side of death. Here was a man who had been to the third heaven. He had heard things that are unlawful for men to repeat. He knew what was on the other side of death. And through that final curtain lay an endless destiny of either weal or woe. That's why he wrote, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because the penalty of death is inflicted as the consequence for sin. And that penalty has laid low every generation since the days of Adam. And that was the penalty willingly endured by Jesus as our substitute. He discharged for saints, the incalculable debt that we incurred by our crimes against heaven. And we're told in the Bible that anybody who trusts in Jesus is delivered from the menacing curse. That was the message entrusted to Paul on the road to Damascus. And he was passionate about the salvation of souls. And as he watched his unbelieving Jewish brethren slip into eternity day after day, it grieved him deeply. He said this, I still marvel at what he said. He said, I have great sorrow 
and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. I think it's hard for us to fully appreciate the depth of Paul's concern. If I understand what he said there correctly, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, he was willing to be accursed if it would mean the salvation of the Jews. In other words, he would forego his eternal happiness to obtain theirs. And all I can say is that he must have been filled to overflowing with the Spirit of Christ. Because that's what Jesus did. It's something I never would do. I've never even thought about that. How could he say that? How could Paul say that he would forfeit heaven for the sake of his brothers of the flesh? Of course, it's a moot point because such a thing would be impossible. Psalm 49 that we sang. Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. No man can ransom another. No mere man. But Jesus as the God-man was fit for and appointed to that glorious work. And if sinners are going to be saved, it's because they put their faith in him. And people need Jesus, and that's why Paul was so devoted to evangelism, and that's why he was willing to accommodate himself whenever possible. He was willing to adapt himself socially to gain a hearing for the gospel. And when it comes to matters of indifference, matters having no religious or moral significance, he was more than willing to bend. And that's what explains, I think, his attitude toward the circumcision of Timothy. Let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to change the way you dress to gain a hearing for the gospel? Would you be willing to alter your appearance or modify your routine or adjust your schedule or even learn a language? How about shopping and eating and playing and working in another town that you might find unappealing? I wonder how far we would go in non-essentials to win souls for Christ. The adaptability for evangelism. But lastly, I think this teaches us something about the important and necessary work of discipleship. You see, when Paul added Timothy to the team, he became the young man's mentor. And the apostle took over where his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois left off. He would deepen Timothy's understanding and acquaint him with evangelistic strategy. And Paul saw great promise and potential in this young man, and he was willing to develop it. He was happy to invest in him now so that he could enjoy a return tomorrow, and that's discipleship. Identifying potential laborers and investing in them. Older men and older women trying to mentor the younger Christians in the body. Because Christianity is always one generation from extinction. Did you realize that? Happens all the time. 
Christianity is one generation from extinction, humanly speaking. So we try to train them to obey the commands of God and to trust the providence of God and to face the difficulties of life and to love others. In the work of RUF, Nate does this on the campus of Kent State. In the work of Young Life, many of our members do this in the local campuses all around us. We do this in our Sunday school classes, and I know it goes on informally in all sorts of ways, discipleship. And one of the greatest forms of discipleship is found in the role of parents. God gives moms and dads all the advantages and opportunities to train these young covenant children. And there's a whole network of other people who are supporting them in this role, officers and teachers and fellow members and friends. And we all have opportunities to get involved and help mentor these younger Christians. Because the truth is, we're called upon to pass on the faith to the next generation. And of great importance in discipleship is a mentor's own walk of faith. You cannot impart to others something that you don't possess. I think it was Robert Murray McShane, one of the great Scottish preachers and theologians of the 19th century. Do you know what he said? The greatest need of my people is my holiness. <laughs> His own holiness. Because he understood the need for passing on the love of Christ. It's got to be a faith worth imitating in discipleship. Let me close with this illustration. William Kelly, you probably have never heard of him. But William Kelly was an outstanding student of the Bible whose scholarship and spirituality made him a powerful instrument in God's hand throughout Great Britain at the close of the 19th century. Okay? He once discipled a young man preparing for Trinity College in Dublin. And it was in that way, by discipling this young man, that he came to the attention of the professors at Trinity College. So the professors urged William Kelly to become a professor at the college where he could distinguish himself. You've done a great job with this young man. Become a professor. When Kelly was less than enthusiastic about their suggestion, they were confused. And one of them went up to Kelly and said, but Mr. Kelly, aren't you interested in making a name for yourself in the world? And to that, Kelly replied, which world, gentlemen? Which one? May God enable us to disciple to the best of our ability for the glory of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the example of Paul, who in non-essentials was willing to bend, but never yielded for the sake of the gospel. Help us to grow in our discernment. Help us to be willing to adapt. And Father, help us to work at discipleship to the best of our ability. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.